My name is Khadija LaShawn, and I am the Black guidance counselor that my community needs. I'm a strategic investor and CEO. I make money in my sleep, and I teach others how to do the same. I share my knowledge, talents, and resources with others. So if you're in need of that motivation or courage to start following your own path, look no further. My intention is to share as much value with you all as possible and to show you that there are many different paths to happiness and many different paths to wealth. You just have to find the one that's right for you. because you're too uh, lazy to build your own website, then it, do- you, it doesn't make any sense to have email or to have a pay-per-click campaign. So there were too many hosts and they deserve what they got who believe in this fairy tale that Airbnb... Because... You know, I want to hear somebody black talking. I want to hear somebody black talk about Airbnb. Okay. Another thing that I do when I when I purchase properties, I always always make sure because honestly, it doesn't matter what real estate strategy you do, whether you buy a whole guy, you fix and flip, wholesaling, whatever, you make your money when you buy. You have to buy the asset right up front. Yeah. So one thing that I always do is I always make sure that if I'm buying my properties, it has to also cash flow as a traditional rental. This is episode number seven four of the Short Mental Success Series podcast. Are you an investor that's looking to have your home professionally managed? Go to cohostit.com for more information. Welcome back to Short Mental Success Stories. I'm your host, Julian Sage. This is a show where I talk to hosts about their journeys in starting and growing their short mental business. My goal is that you'll be able to walk away with practical information that'll help you become a better host and learn how to scale your business. Like any exceptional host, we all strive for five-star reviews. So please go on over to iTunes and let us know what you enjoy as it really helps support the show. If you haven't done so already, go on over to our Facebook group, The Host Nation, to connect with the community. Hey, what is going on, Host Nation? I'm super excited to be back again with you this week. I want to say first off that I'm really sorry for missing our Thursday episode. Typically, I always release them at 5 a.m. on Thursday mornings, and then it's around uh, 8 a.m., for the YouTube videos, but I missed yesterday. I am very, very sorry. Uh, It's been actually really busy with the properties that we have been onboarding. Uh, We have some more additional properties that we do plan on taking on. Uh, We just relaunched our coaching program and got a bunch of new people in. So that's been really exciting. And we are actively still growing our management company. So we are doing master lease investing in our turnkey master lease investor program. Uh, but we still are growing our management company as well. So we've been working and doing some really cool projects to be able to get out into the marketplace and try to find more clients. 
All of this while still working a full-time job in the Coast Guard, but luckily I do have an amazing team behind me now. Uh, John, my business partner, and then our amazing media team that is helping really just get all of this content out there. In this episode, I had the special honor of speaking with TJ Tijani. TJ is a Burr investor, and for those of you that don't know that aren't a part of the Bigger Pockets community, uh, Burr is for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and then repeat. So TJ is a uh, real estate investor, and he's also a short rental manager based out of the Houston, Texas area. He has 14 units total, seven of which he owns, and he built these up through Burr Investing, and then seven are master leased. So in this episode, DJ shares his experience of Burr Investing to master lease investing, how to stand out in a crowded market, and the costs associated with buy and hold investing versus master lease investing. Still, even to this day, I still get people that say, master lease investing is a scam. No one's saying that to, to me, obviously, but I see in the Facebook groups because we're always on there. Uh, lots of people saying, oh, it's a scam, all these things. Really though, when you look at master lease investing, it is just another form of being able to acquire properties without having to spend a whole lot of money. You do have to take into account that, you know, there is gonna be a little bit less profit than if you did own it, but that's really where it comes down to how much are you able to make on the return of the property versus how much you actually have to spend investing into a property to acquire it. Obviously, TJ has found a really nice strategy because he is a Burr investor. He is someone that can go out, find these properties that do need work. He's able to invest into them. He's able to then refinance out of the property, get his cash back, and now he's essentially acquired a property where he is able to gain that equity and that appreciation, and he can potentially make a little bit more profit because he doesn't have to pay a rental payment but master lease investing is perfect for the investor that doesn't have any experience in flipping or trying to find those really good off-market deals. And you're just looking for something where you can pick it up, get in very cheaply and quickly, and then start making a profit. If you like my show notes for this episode, go to shorttermsage.com backslash str74. Or if you like my show notes, send directly to your inbox of the week, then go to shorttermsage.com backslash show notes. With all that being said, on this week's conversation. Hey, welcome back, Coast Nation, to another episode of Short Mental Success Stories. In this That's episode, I have the special the honor boy. of speaking with TJ Tijani. TJ, would you please introduce yourself to the Host Nation and let them know who you are, what inspired you to get into short term rentals? Slow down. What's going on, Host Nation? Uh, thank you so much for having me, too, by the way. It was a true honor to, to be here and uh, you know have this interview and to share my story with your audience. Uh, again, kind of like you said, my name is TJ, TJ Tijani. I've uh, been in real estate, actually. I bought my first a uh, piece of real estate in 2015. At the time, I was still working as a as an engineer full-time. And um, so my background actually is mechanical engineering. I got an engineering degree from the University of Houston uh, with a mathematics minor. And I um, worked in oil and gas for some time. And I did that. And it's not like I hated what I do. I actually didn't hate it. I traveled quite a bit. My job required me to be offshore quite a bit. I was, I was gone probably about 65% of the year working out the rigs. Uh, but whenever I was in town, I took advantage of my time in town and I was investing and I was looking for opportunities within the real estate space. And so then came uh, 2017 and uh, when the market kind of took a dip around 2016, my portfolio is with ExxonMobil. So I worked for an oil and gas service company, but we worked with the ExxonMobil team. That was my portfolio was with. And um, when, you know, they kind of slowed down on their drilling and their completions, um, because of what the because of the market, then we kind of didn't have much projects to support the amount of engineers on the team, and so they, I was given an opportunity to just kind of move to a different role within the company. 
but I really want to fill in that role. That role would require more time in the office and about, you know, about half my salary. So I decided to bet on myself. And then I decided to go into real estate full time. At the time, I had five rental properties. So, you know, I had, you know, income coming from the rental properties and I keep kept my expenses pretty low. So my income from my rentals were actually taking care of my expenses. And that's kind of what kind of gave me that confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do this real estate thing full time. And so I got into the short term rental space, not even necessarily because I was looking for it. I honestly was um, just doing market research on marketing within real estate. And I came across short term rentals. I came across a video about short term rentals and Airbnb. And I decided like, oh, wow, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot with this particular property that I have. And at the time, I was just doing a rehab on a property. I had two properties, actually. I was going to do a rehab on one, keep it as a rental, and I was going to flip the other one. So I ended up still flipping that one, but the one I was going to keep as a rental, I decided to try the short-term rental route. So, and it was a three-bedroom, two-bath property. It was a 1,700 square feet. I gutted it and remodeled it, and then I furnished it. And I was really nervous <laughs> to see if this thing was going to work. And I never forget, I list, when I furnished the property, I listed it. And the day I launched the property, I listed it and I turned my phone to, to just kind of upside down to just kind of see what would happen. And I started watching the movie. And, you know, within the hour, I got an inquiry and the excitement just from that one inquiry. It's like, oh, wow, somebody's actually interested in my property. All right. And uh, he didn't end up booking. But the very next day, I, I woke up with two bookings. So I was like, you know what? I think I can stick my teeth into this. And the next month, I, I, I started, um, I saw I got another unit. That one I rented. This one I owned, my very first one I owned, that one I rented. I started learning about rental arbitrage. I started learning about master leasing and control without ownership. And so I decided to go that route as well. So I do both. I definitely am what you consider a landlord host, but I also am what you consider a rental arbitrage host as well. And so that's how I got into the space, and it's been great ever since. It's been pretty life-changing for me. So going back, you had this job that was, you know, you had the opportunity to advance in your career but it was going to require more time from you. You know, you're trading your, your time for more money. Uh, but you said, Hey, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm dabbling in real estate right now. I've got about five properties um, and I'm ready to take a leap. I mean, those properties, those are long-term rentals. How much were you cash flowing on them? Yeah, those are long-term rentals. Those are long-term rentals. And two of them were on a, you know, super low interest rate at 15 year notes. Um, and I was cash flowing. I probably an average about, Four and five hundred dollars for each property a month. Uh, one of them, the, the lowest one, would I believe I was cash on like three fifty, something like that. And so, uh, but yeah. but yeah, I'll probably average about four to five hundred dollars cash flow uh, when you get it all over. And and how how long and what was that process to get those initial five properties for you? Did you have to spend a lot of money, spend a lot of time? Like, what was that journey just getting to that? You know, those five. No, great question. So there's there's two ways, and I like to kind of look at this time versus money trade-off when you look to buy assets, buy real estate assets to keep for rental properties. Take the very first rental property I purchased, for example. I bought that property with my money. What I mean by that is that that property didn't need any work. That property was ready to go. Then it was was nicely rehabbed, new AC, new roof, new everything. I went ahead. I bought that property with twenty percent down. I bought it for ninety-two thousand. I put 20% down with closing costs, came out to about $22,000. I put that down. Um, within a week after I closed on that property, I put up a rent sign in front of it, and I had to rent it out within a week. And that my mortgage was about $840. My tenant was paying $1240. So that delta was my cash flow, right? And so that, from the point that I closed on that property to where to get it to a point to where it started cash flowing, I put a tenant in it. Um, it didn't take much time, but it did take a, a nice, a sizable down payment. 
and take the um and take the my very first Airbnb. I remodeled that property. I bought that property in distress. It was actually unlivable. I completely gutted that property, and it took time. And I got that. I had to you know leverage a private lender. Had the private lender send his appraiser. I had to go through the, the um, go through the the rehab stuff and work with the appraiser. Then once we closed on it, then I rehabbed it. So that process took about three months and then an extra month to refinance it because my private lender's money is expensive. So I leveraged the private lender and then I refinanced it right away. Pretty much the burst strategy, right? And so with that, that took time for me to get there. But I bought that property with literally zero dollars out of my pocket because the spread from what I bought it for versus what it's worth. Once the property is fixed up with such a good spread, I was able to leverage a private lender. And I was still within 70% loan of value. So even when I close on a property on a refinance, I have to, I capture 30% with the equity right away. And um, then I can make that property a short-term rental property. So, but to get to that point where I close on that property to where it's actually starting cash flowing, that's a, that was about a four month process. And that took time, but it didn't take much of my money at all. Actually, actually none of my money. So there's like this time versus money trade off. So I started learning and perfecting how to buy real estate with my time. And that's how I actually built that portfolio of five properties. That first one was the only one that I bought with my money. The rest of the four I bought with my time and I rehabbed all of them. So you were you were the one doing the rehabbing yourself or were you hiring that out? Oh no, I hired it out. <laughs> we hired a contractor. I think the most I've ever done in a rehab is just swing hammers during demo just because I like doing that, <laughs> smashing stuff. So uh, but outside of that, uh, I definitely had the definitely had contractors for each. And at first when I first got started, I, I was I'll hire a general contractor, like he had his subs and all that. But now I'm at a point where I've done enough rehabs and now I actually GC on my stuff. So now I have subs that I that, that I use, and I GC on my projects now. Now, what was the learning curve like? Trying to like that, that can be pretty uh, scary, maybe for a lot of people thinking like, hey, I want to get into, you know, I want to be able to own property, you know, but you know, I don't want to spend as much money as you did, like on that first one, doing a turnkey, you know, more of like a turnkey property. Uh, you want something to, you know, you want to find distress. You want to be able to add value, like you said. You're not putting in your own money. You're doing the burst strategy for those of you that are listening, you know, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Um, you're basically just able to take the uh, equity out to be able to get your, you know, basically pay for itself. But that that can be really scary for a lot of people. You know, buying a turnkey versus buying a burr is completely different. And so what 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 was that experience like for that that first like burr property? Did you have a lot of knowledge or a lot of experience? So two things that, that helped me out with that first one, because it is a scary undertaking, especially for your first one. One thing that really helped me out for that first burn strategy is it wasn't an extensive rehab. That rehab was only, it was only like a $15,000 rehab for that first burn strategy one. It was only a $15,000 rehab. And on top of that, the second thing that really helped me out and kind of gave me the confidence. Well, first of all, I was doing a whole lot of research. I was kind of had that, we had that engineering mindset. We kind of get into this analysis paralysis kind of situation. And so it wasn't until I joined a real estate group here, a local real estate group here in Houston. And that was kind of what they focused on. They focused on buying rehab and property. They focused on cash flow. They focused on owning assets. And so with them, I joined that group and they had a vendors list as well, like vendors list that were, you know, that were approved with, with the group that said, okay, these contractors are good. Um, so that, they, that kind of gave me the confidence. And I didn't want my very first one to be an extensive rehab. So I, I purchased the property. Didn't need much rehab. It was mainly cosmetic stuff. And that was my very first burst strategy. The way that one ended up working out, because it doesn't always work out to where it's zero dollars out of pocket. But if you do it right, it could be minimum kind of dollars out of pocket. I actually bought that house in the same neighborhood as my first one. 
But that first one, I put $22,000 out of pocket. But that second one, I put $5,000 out of pocket because I was able to leverage a private lender and I use a burst strategy on that second one. So what helped me out, what made it not so scary was that for one, it wasn't that it, it wasn't extensive rehab. It was mainly cosmetics. Two, I kind of had the backing of like a group, a local group that had vendors list that I can kind of call if I had any issues or anything seemed scary. I had any questions. Well, how do you do this? Well, do I do next? What do I do next? So that kind of helped me. But I tell you, that very first burst strategy that I did taught me more than every all the studying that I've done in real estate, all the videos that I've watched. It taught me more. And that really gave me the confidence to go out and do more. After that, that what that does is I proved to myself that, you know, I can actually do this. I can actually own assets and I can actually scale this thing. So that that's that that helped me out a lot. Now what what was that that really tipping point though when you started looking at like because I mean if you're able to successfully, you know, pick up properties, not have to put a lot of capital down, you know, you, there is that time, but you know, so you, you, you found, you found how to be able to do it and how to be able to scale. But then what was that tipping point where it's like, Hey, you know, I can turn these into short rentals or I can even just start master leasing properties. Yeah. So for, for me, that tipping point for when I, I kind of realized that, you know what, Hey, I can actually earn more money, um, cash on these properties, making them short term rentals. Um, at first, it was just when I when I started learning about short term rentals, when I kind of got turned on to it in the midst of my market research in real estate. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna try it on this. And at first, though, my first mindset was like, man, this might be a big undertaking because a furnishing a three bedroom, two bath house, the same thing on a square feet house uh, for your first short term rental, that might be a lot. So I was a little bit worried about that. I actually remember while I was furnishing, you could imagine it's a it's a mess. There's boxes everywhere. It's furniture everywhere. I remember standing in the middle of that house and I, and I literally almost had like a, not a panic attack, but I was like, man, I think I might be in over my head here. Like, what am I doing? And um, so I just went ahead and just, uh, when I, I saw it through and I'm glad I did. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it clicked for me when I started doing market research and I started looking at other listings in the area before I decided to make it a short-term home, I looked on Airbnb and I said, okay, okay, this guy's making, okay, this is how much he's charging, but that's okay, wait. If I'm only 50% occupied, man, I'll make more um, than I would if I was just to make this property a, a traditional rental. So I'd say, you know, I'm just going ahead and just, you know, if, for me, um, I decide to just take that leap. It's just, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, I'll just sell all this furniture, take the loss, and I'll just make it, you know, um, a regular rental property or student housing because it was, it's actually really close to the, to the University of Houston campus. So I was either going to make a student housing or just make it a traditional rental. And you know, if it didn't work, but uh, that I decided to just go for it. Why? Yeah. Why do you think that yeah, your man. mindset shifted? Because there's yeah, a lot of people right that get into yeah. real estate and they, they don't ever you know, change their their path. They don't ever you know get into this. Do you think that the mindset of just doing burrs and being able to acquire properties is different than the mindset of you know turning it into a short term rental? Because now you're you're a manager for for these properties. Um, is it is it a really big leap or difference from, you know, doing the burrs to doing the, the short rentals? Oh man, so absolutely. And it's a complete mindset shift because as you know, it's a totally different process to just have a traditional rental versus a short term rental. Um, one's, there are pros and cons to doing both, honestly. One's a lot more hands on and one's not, but one has the potential to earn you at least three times the amount as a traditional rental if you're doing it right. And so I realized that that traditional rental route you know, it's easier. And I was already doing that, you know, it was make it nice. 
I usually tend to replace everything. If I'm remodeling, if it, if the roof is even skeptical, if it's super old, I'm replacing it. If the water heater, I'm replacing Because at the end of the day, I don't want a call a year later and say, oh, this is broken. This. So I, I, I make sure that I that I handle things up front. And then it's like almost like setting up and getting it, especially if you have a property manager managing it for you. Bring the tenant, tenant brings their own furniture, they bring their own. So a lot of time, I, I didn't even put a fridge in there. A lot of time, they bring their own refrigerator. And so, um, that was that's that right but then on the short-term rental side now you're handling a lot of if you have a turnover you have a security issues you're handling furnishings you're handling uh cleaners all that stuff and um so i realized that you know what i can earn more money on the short-term rental so if i can learn how to really automate if i can learn how to build systems around it to run um and free up my time and i can grow this business without necessarily having to scale my time with it then why don't i do this and why don't i do go this route and, and stick with this route. And that's that was kind of the mindset and the tipping point for me when I realized that, you know what, it's a lot more hands-on process doing the short-term rentals, but if I could systematize it though, if I can add systems and build a team to manage it for me um, and still make more money, then I want to do this and I can I can get to the cash. Because at the end of the day, for me, it was all about cash flow. I wasn't working a full-time job anymore. You know, I was trying to build something to earn cash for my job. My goal at first was like, I want to start daddy. Um, I want to meet that. I was I was fortunate enough to make six figures out of college. It required me to be gone quite a bit. I was traveling quite a bit, but I was making good money. And so my goal was that, you know what? I wanted to meet that. That was my initial goal. I want to meet that income that I was making, and then I can go from there. And so I wanted to get more cash flow. So I decided to really stick to the short-term rental route and build a team and build systems and to run it. So you've got these properties. Um, you started uh, short-term renting it, and then... Um, you, you got your first master lease property. What, what was the, what was your thought process? Did you, did you, do you feel like it was a completely different world trying to go in and, and lease a property or why didn't you just stick with, you know, purchasing properties, fixing them up, you know, not having to put your own money in, you know, doing the burr and scaling that way. Man, great question. So for one thing, that process in terms of getting these master leases is a totally different process. It took me completely out of my comfort zone in order to do that. At the time, I was horrible at talking to people. I was horrible at talking to uh, to complexes, even landlords. I was not good at talking to. Them. I remember one one occurrence. I spoke. I was talking to these. Um, it was a town. It was a condo complex. It was a small apartment. It was like condo. They had about fifty units, and it was a great location, close to the downtown area. And I went in and I talked to the office manager, and I was like, "Yeah, um, so you know, I you know I do." You know, I'm trying to see if I can do a corporate lease. You know, we listed we list this property on various sites, and she said, "Oh my God, you're one of those Airbnb guys. You do Airbnb." And then she said, "And she said, this is literally what she, she said. I don't have time for this." And obviously, I could tell she probably was having a frustrating day already. But in her, I was in her office. She said, "I don't have time for this," and she got up and just walked out of her own office and left me left me there. I was sitting there. And I was like, "What just happened?" And uh, so that was a heck of an experience. So I, I, I was I realized that you know it's all about the repetition. But I got better and I got better. The more people I talked to, the more I talked to folks, I got better at positioning not not only just myself. But my business as well to get these leases because we rent these, when I rent these properties and I do a master, yeah. I rent them under a business. We do corporate leases, so I had to get good at that. And uh, so the, the the other question that you posed that was a great question. So I actually still do the burn strategy, right? I do that, but I also do rental arbitrage because at the end of the day, there's pros and cons to doing both. I like the aspect of owning my assets. Uh, for one thing, my margins on the ones that I own are better. 
Um, I own the asset, so I get the benefit of, all the, of, of, of owning the asset. Um, so that's great, but it takes time for me to get there, especially now that I burn all my properties. It takes time for me to get to the point to where it's cash flowing. So if that's my only strategy, then it's gonna take time. It's gonna take a long time for me to reach those unit goals and those income goals. So that's why I play both sides. So I, I'm gonna grow um, properties that I wanna own, but I'm also gonna do rental arbitrage because that's what allows me to take those business to the next level. That's what allows me to scale the business a lot faster. So that's why I'm playing both sides. I love my rental arbitrage properties uh, because they great, great cash flow and they allow me to scale the business a lot quicker. We just locked in, I just locked in four units in the Midtown area. We furnished one. We're going to be rolling out the next three here shortly. And I was like, we did that on the corporate lease and I got four units right away. As soon as you get the lease, furnish it and you cash flow. You know? So within a week, and I always give myself a week at the most to get the property ready to go. And versus, you know, owning it, it takes time for me to get there. Right now, I'm remodeling at the moment four doors. Four doors I'm remodeling. One's a duplex and two single family houses that are on the same lot. Great locations. But they're currently being remodeled right now. It's taking me time to get to the point to where it's going to cash flow. But on the rental arbitrage side, I get to scale the business a lot faster. That's why I like both sides. And I play both sides. It's been working out pretty well for me. Yeah, I think I think you brought up you know something that we're always preaching on this podcast, TJ, is uh, we call it the RCB model of investing. Yeah, rental arbitrage, co-hosting, and buy and hold. Each each model has a different strategy or different you know pros and cons. Um, you know, which, what you're saying here is like, you like the buy and holds because it's, it's a cash preserver. You get that equity, you get that appreciation, but it does take longer. It's not as easily scalable, uh, because there is that time involved, but you know, the rental arbitrage, you're just getting that straight cash flow, which you're able to then invest into more buy and hold properties. Um, or, you know, just, just, uh, you know, be able to reach your, your, your financial numbers. So I think it's really, you know, really, uh, you know, really wise of you to, to diversify yourself. A lot of people that we talk to sometimes are like, I only do this or I only do that. Um, but so what's your thought process on people that say rental arbitrage is riskier or, you know, I only do buy and holds since you're doing both. What, what is your mindset with the two? Um, you know, I, and I tell people that that wants to do either or if you're strictly on one side, then that's okay. That's your prerogative. That's what you want to do. I'm not definitely not knocking that hustle whatsoever because it's great to do rental arbitrage. I mean, just the idea that you can cash flow from a property that you don't own. That's great. Like that, when you, if you were to say that 10 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, you're like, what are you talking about? That's impossible. Um, you have to own the asset. So just for that simple fact as well. That's great if you want to build your business on rental arbitrage. Awesome. Okay. Um, if you want to build it strictly on buy and hold, that's great. But one of my one of my students that I work with on a one on one basis, he owns all of his. He said, "Man, I, I just want to own all of mine. I want to own all of mine." And he that's what works for him. He has ten units right now, and he bought he bought all of them. One's a sixplex, one's a fourplex, and um, he's doing pretty well with those. And that's what he wants to do. And he said, "Man, I'm not really feeling it. I don't know. Just something about I don't own it." You know, it's, he can't just get his mind around it, but that's okay if that's what you want to do. Um, I, I say, you know, explore both sides. You know, if you're if you want to do rental arbitrage, that's amazing because you could, especially if you run your numbers and you know exactly what you're doing with your numbers, um, and you could confirm and you do your research to know that okay, this is going to be a good location, it's a great asset, this this will cash flow pretty well. Then build that. But if you want to own, then own. Um, you know, I was, there was a, there was a debate I was getting into, I guess not a debate, more so a discussion. They were like, well, you know, you're putting all this money down on these properties. You know, your, your rate of returns a lot less. You're going to put down a down payment and then making an Airbnb, 
And I'm like, okay, I, I understand that, but that's not how I buy it. You know, but the way I buy them, I buy them like an investor. I buy them with little to no money out of pocket. So if I can build that, if I can build, if I can grow something, buy an asset, get instant equity capture, add value to the asset, let the let it cash flow as a short term rental with little to no money out of pocket. Why would I? Why won't I just keep doing that? Why I'm building my short term rental arbitrage side as well? Why won't I do play both sides? So the way I see it, if you know how to do it and you know how to do it right the right way, um, then why not do both sides? Another thing that I do when I when I purchase properties, I always always make sure because honestly, it doesn't matter what real estate strategy you do, whether you're buying a whole guy, you're fix and flip, wholesaling, whatever. You make your money when you buy. You have to buy the asset right up front. So one thing that I always do is I always make sure that if I'm buying my properties, it has to also cash flow as a traditional rental. I'm not just, it's not just, yeah, it will cash flow as a short-term rental 100%, but will it cash flow as a traditional rental? For one thing, you never know what could happen. Maybe there's a deed restriction that might be impacted that, that comes in that neighborhood or an HOA restriction that comes in that neighborhood that will not allow you to make that property a short-term rental anymore, but you own it, right? You own it, so what you're going to do, you're going to sell it or what are you going to do? Will it cash flow when you have a traditional tenant in it? That's one of the criteria that I use. If it won't cash flow with a traditional tenant, I'm not buying it. Another reason is because the lenders that I, like most of these lenders now, there are a few, there are more and more coming on that actually consider short-term rental uh, income, but most of them don't. They go off of traditional rental income still, which has been the way for years. And so those are, those are the ones that, that's the numbers that they go off of. So that's why I buy my assets as if it was a traditional rental property. Hey, this is Julian, and I wanted to be able to give you our newest book, Airbnb Secrets Revealed, How to Build a Fortune on Airbnb Without Owning Property. In this book, we talk about the concepts of rental arbitrage investing, as well as co-hosting, and how you can build a business leveraging other people's properties. This book is perfect for the new short-term rental investor, and it's something that I wish that I had when I first started, as it would have saved me a lot of trouble and helped me to understand how to be able to leverage the power of short-term rental investing in your own real estate portfolio. If you'd like to get our newest book completely for free, go to shorttermsage.com backslash free book. Now back to the show. What do you think, you know, when, when people say one is riskier than the other, what, what do you say? Do you say that it's riskier to purchase a property where, you know, it could go under or regulations might change or that it's riskier for, you know, master lease investing because you're putting, you know, spending money on furniture, they could cancel your lease. What, what are your thoughts on uh, which is a riskier investment? I think if I had to pick which one's riskier, I would definitely say master leasing is riskier because at the end of the day, you you control the property, but you don't own it. And at the end of the day, the owners have the promise. So if they don't want to, if they want to cancel your lease, they can. If they don't want to remove your lease, they can. Um, so I would say I would put that at the more riskier spot. Uh, but you know that means that just means that you need to, for one thing, make sure that you ran it the right way. <laughs> ran it out, ran it the right way up front. Um, secondly, make sure you run your numbers up front to make sure that this, that property actually makes sense as a short-term rental. Do your research, whether you use AirDNA or whether you do it manually, you know, by looking at listing and dissecting listings in that area. However you go about it, you need to make sure that you know exactly what you're getting into up front. I actually always try to do two-year leases as well, and they usually give me better deals for doing two-year leases. Um, so I always try to do two-year leases. And um, and do what you say you're gonna do. Like make sure that you screen your guests properly. You're not you're not you're really minimizing disruption within that community. 
and they'll renew your lease. You know, the, my people that I do master leases with, they love the fact that I keep that I want to come back. You know, they're like, oh, that well, you're good, you're good, we love you, you're good. So, um, there, you want, definitely want to make sure that you that you're approaching it the right way up front. But if I was to say one was riskier, then I would say that the master lease is riskier. Um, on the owning side, just make sure that you're running your numbers right, that you're buying it right up front. Just like I mentioned earlier, if you're going to own it, don't just depend on short-term rental income. Run it as if it would be a, as if it would be a traditional rental. If it was a traditional rental and you will be upside down, then I wouldn't re- recommend buying that asset. To be quite honest with you, so that's kind of how you can kind of hedge your risk on that on that side. Just make sure that you buy it right up front. So if you do, if you buy it right up front, there's a saying that goes, if you buy the real estate correctly up front, it's really really hard to mess it up. <laughs> It's really hard to mess it up. So, so that's why I would I would kind of put the mass lease. And if I had to pick one, that's definitely a riskier play. And do you think that it's the same for you know mass lease investing? Do you think that it really is very dependent on location or the type of property? Like, can you get into a bad mass lease, or is it you know because you're able to get your your return on investment within a much relatively shorter time that there really isn't ever a, a, a quote unquote bad mass lease? Uh, I think I think it could be. I mean, we know that location definitely matters. Location is a big deal. Um, this is why you have to do your research. If it is at a location that you know that maybe maybe it's not that it won't work, but it won't. It's not working as well as you thought it would. Maybe it's not cash flowing as well as you thought it was. And yeah, I mean that's you know it could be risky. It definitely could be. Um, you know, a bad master lease play. Thankfully, um, I have not got into a bad master lease play because you know there's a lot of research that I do going into it, and I'm very very versed. In the Houston market here, you know, Houston is a big city and we're comprised of loops. So I, I am so, I didn't master the numbers within a certain area, within the, within the loop, which is where all of my units are They're within that area. So I, I kind of, I kind of niche down within that area. And it's really, really hard to mess it up when you know and you studied that market uh, for so long. It's kind of hard to mess that up. So I keep my units within that realm. Um, that's why I've gotten offers to, a lot of opportunities to delve outside and go outside in different areas. And I always, always turn them down because this is exactly where I like to niche down on. And these are the numbers that I've matched. This is where I know works. So there's definitely possible, it's definitely possible to get into a bad master's play. It definitely is. Um, but you know, you have to, that's why you have to do that research. There are two other, another way to get into a really bad master's play is if you take down that lease the wrong way, I got a call. Man, it's about eight months ago from now, and uh, you know, it was a guy. He called me. He said, "Man, TJ, I should talk to you before I did this Airbnb thing." And I was like, "Wow, what happened?" He said, "Man, they, you know, he started renting out this apartment complex in downtown Houston, phenomenal location. Um, but you know, he rented it under his name, just like a, just out of any tenant would. And within a month, they found his listing on Airbnb, and he got into a lot of trouble. Not only did they evict him." Even though he was willingly ready to want to leave, they uh, they put an eviction on him, took him to court, and then he signed a 12 month lease. And all 12 months, they want all the payments of all 12 months paid up front. <laughs> you know, so he got into trouble for doing that, and he went about it the wrong. That's a, that I would also consider a bad master lease play because you didn't necessarily go into it the right way, and you took that lease down um, the wrong way. So. There are definitely ways to, to to botch it. There's definitely ways. That's why you got to get educated on knowing how to take these leases down the right way. Yeah, and what what you're saying is that that this person didn't do the pre-qualification for the property. They didn't see can I can I get a corporate lease? 
Am I allowed? Do I have that corporate lease addendum on there? Am I allowed to market the property? And so he just, he just said, Hey, you know, I, I hear, you know, Sean from Airbnb Automator. I hear TJ. I hear Julian talking about, you know, picking up all these properties. Well, I'm just going to go sign on a property and then I'll turn it into one. And, but then that's, that's where a lot of those issues come. That's where the trust comes into. That's where people, that's where people like that first manager that you went to, you know, as they said, Oh, you're one of those Airbnb guys. That's what's kind of given the, the bad rap. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Um, that's, that's exactly what you did, actually. <laughs> so what has been the most challenging part of scaling your short-term rental business? Because right now you're at that, that you know, we, we kind of call it the uh, the stress points of a short-term rental operator where, you know, you had your first property, your first three, it's pretty easily manageable. But now you're at that, you know, that um, you're, you're at around 14 properties. So you've kind of moved past that first stress point where it's like, the messaging, maybe the, the cleaning, uh, but where, what has been the most challenging parts that you've faced along to get the 14 properties right now? Man, I think, I think probably, probably making sure that I'm, that I'm screening these guests properly. I think that's probably been the biggest learning curve. On my very second, my very, my second short-term rental property was doing so well. It was in downtown Houston, doing amazing. I was 98% occupied and I wanted to get to 100% occupancy. And so there was somebody that was ready to book those last two days. And, you know, I just had that mindset of, oh man, I, I want to get these last two days booked. And, you know, the person had a very incomplete profile, didn't even have a profile picture. His profile was brand new, just, just created the profile. Um, he didn't even give a good reason why he wanted to book the thing. He just said that, hey, I'm coming in the area, I want to stay. And so I was like, okay, cool. I let him stay, and I realized quickly that first of all, not all money is good money. Uh, second of all, I have to make sure that I am I am properly screened as guests. He ended up having the biggest party in this one bedroom apartment, <laughs> and it was like forty people, <laughs> and so much so that the concierge at the complex called me and said, "Hey, TJ, um, something's going on at your unit, man, <laughs> at your apartment." So I had to go over there. And the, the the hallway was filled with people. We had other 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 people living in the apartments coming out the door, like, "What is going on here?" And I felt so so bad. And um and so we had to get everybody kicked out. Got everybody involved. Thankfully, nothing like major was broken. It was just a big mess. Um, but nothing major was broken, thankfully. And um so I think going through that, and then also just over time, just knowing and understanding how to properly screen guests has been a learning curve. But we have, I have, I would like to say, um, kind of gotten pretty, pretty good at that now. Uh, we got a whole lot better at that. And that's one thing. And one thing I like to tell people, like, especially when you scale in this business, don't, don't scale too fast before your systems are down right. Because if you scale on top of a broken system, it's just going to make things worse. It's going to make your, your business worse. And you're not going to get the reviews that you need to keep this business relevant. Um, so make sure that your systems are, are tight and are down packed um, before you actually look to start scaling this thing to another level. So that's one thing that you know I, I had to make sure that I did it as well. But yeah, I think I think just making sure and uh, screening the guests and make sure we get the right people in there has probably been the biggest learning curve because that's always a it's one of those things that is always is never just completely fixed, right? It's always something that you're learning to get better at. And you're going to be approached with different scenarios. You're going to be, you know, you have to make decisions based on that. So I think that's probably the biggest learning curve. And and what's what is some of that? That what does your screening process look like? Because you know, there's Airbnb, especially right now, they're trying to limit the amount of interaction with with guests. Um, and you know, different platforms. 
you know, have different types of, you know, um, uh, lack of, of requirements. So what is your, your screening process that you've been able to add on top of uh, what is currently available? Yeah, so we look at a few things. Like uh, like I mentioned earlier, we look at how new the listing was created. We look at if they have a completed profile. Is their profile completed? Uh, we look at where they're from because a lot of times we, not that we don't accept local guests, but we ask a lot of questions and we make sure that their local guest is actually here for good intention because a lot of local guests, most of the issues that we have are from local guests. <laughs> and so because they don't want to mess up their house, they just want to rent an Airbnb to go a party or whatever. So we we have a pretty you know we we have a line of questioning when it comes to when it comes to our local guests but we try not to out, you know kind of out outcast everybody because at the end of the day you know houston's a big city and there's a lot of suburbs and we're all of our units are in the city by downtown by the university by midtown by the, and by the medical center so a lot of times you know they might want to stay in an airbnb because they have a family member or a friend that's getting treatment so they want to be close to them um, other, other than that, you know, maybe they want to enjoy a weekend in the downtown area and, you know, they want to stay here. They just want to be close to the downtown area. So we try to make sure that we, that we're accommodating to those folks, but our screening process, you know, we ask questions that make sure that, Hey, if you're local, um, you're not having ill intentions. Um, on top of that, you know, we do have, we do have Insta booking. We have Insta booking off. We do require that, you know, you have a full profile, including the government ID. Um, if we, if we, if we have to, I actually haven't had to do this, but I know uh, some people that have really issues with, like big issues with bad guests and tearing up their places. And I would say one of the things that they look at is they look at uh, they look at self-check-in, right? They look at these units and say, okay, it's self-checking. Okay, we're not having to meet with anybody. We can get away with this and that. So uh, I would tell people, man, take even though you offer self-check-in, even if it's a self-check-in process, take that self-check-in option off your listing and put it, set it to where, you know, you'll be given keys or you'll be you'll meet up with somebody to give keys or whatnot because that will deter them right that will say okay okay all well, we got to meet with somebody that'll at least help with with people that want to throw a party make kind of go go another route or not pick your unit because they have to meet with somebody but still have but still have the self-check-in process um when you when you usher guests in uh other than that i mean on top of that we definitely don't do one night stays on the weekends uh we do two night minimums um, I know some people do one nights because I know Airbnb likes one nights, but we do one night stays where we don't do one night stays on the weekends. When we, when I first got started, I was getting a lot of people that just book on a, a one day, one day on a weekend to throw a party. Once we put the, once we made it a two night minimum on the weekends, that, that really, really helped that kill that. So, uh, a lot of, a lot of those things, all those things we're doing, uh, to make sure that we get the right guests in our property for sure. And how do you handle when someone does cause that party. So like, you know, you said that there was, you know, the concierge or the person on the front basically called you and said, Hey, you know, you got, you got all these people. Does, is that relationship now with that apartment like ruined? Are they going to kick you out? Like say, Hey, you know, you dropped it, you know, that was your chance. And now we're going to end the lease. Like, how do you handle that type of situation? So, uh, especially I argue that situation, for example, um, I definitely had to go in the next day to go talk to the office. And I just kind of explained to them that, you know, it was that, that situation wasn't supposed to happen. They did not drop me. Um, they just said, okay, it's fine because neighbors complain. And they, I, before I even got to the neighbors had already complained about it. Um, so I, I just talked to them and they, and they helped me curate that relationship. And, um, and I ended up still having that unit for, for I finished off the lease. And so after that lease, I did have to move out of that unit because they went under new management. 
So that was the only reason. So they switched out like the entire staff chain. That's another thing with rental arbitrage you got to be mindful of. Um, the entire staff chain, they say, hey, we are cutting off this much amount of our corporate leases. We're not offering this much corporate leases anymore. So yeah, you'll have to move, whatever. And um, and uh, so yeah, so, but you know, it's, it's, it's about the relationships. It's about, you know, making sure that you're, that you're, that you're genuine, that you're communicating with, 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 with your landlords. And so, yeah, I mean, just keeping that relationship and keeping that open line of communication definitely helps. And even when bad things happen, something, something unfortunate like that happens, just make sure that you're having that transparency with them will definitely go a long way for sure. And what, what are you facing right now in your business um, as you're scaling? Cause you're also taking on, uh, you said you, you're doing about four remodels. You have about three more mass leases uh, that are coming coming available. Uh, so now you're getting towards that, you know, that 20 range. What what are what's your, kind of your stress point right now, and where do you see this kind of going as you add on more properties? Uh, I would say I think the biggest um, the biggest stress point is probably on the on the side where I'm remodeling these properties because there's just so much that goes into that, you know. Uh, I had to, I recently had to let go of a contractor and I just brought in another one. <laughs> and so, uh, unfortunately, when it comes to contractors, by the way, they're unfortunately they're more bad ones than good ones. So you really have to find a good one and, and take care of them and hang on to them. Um, so I think that's probably my biggest stress point. But outside of that, then it's just kind of furnishing these properties and getting it going. But I, you know, I definitely see um, my goal is to, when I get to, a certain amount of when I get to a certain amount, when I reach that 25 mark in Houston, that I feel like I have a good, I've, I've made a good stake here in the city. I'm branching out to another market for me, so I'm still growing this thing. My goal is to grow this thing and rebuild this business, and and build it to scale and build it to you know to 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 a bigger company, honestly. And so I see this thing, I see this thing getting big. I see short term rentals as a as a, a great cash flow maker, I see it. I see it as something that's that's here to stay. Um, I see the need for it. Uh, people, you know, we're not in the business of just, you know, this is this is not just a business that we're just doing. I mean, they, we're serving people. These we're providing experiences with for a different type of experience for people for for people. So uh, this is definitely something that I see going for the long term. And um, even now, I'm helping a lot of people do it. And you know, I have, you know, I, I've done <laughs> I've done master classes. Uh, that always sell out when I do um, um, Now I'm helping a lot of people uh, get into fitness as well. So it's been good. And Houston, the Texas area, like I, I hear a lot of people and there's been a lot of growth in short-term rentals in, in Texas, Houston, uh, Dallas, all these areas. What do you, do you really think that there is a much, uh, that there really is such a need for more short-term rentals? Or, I mean, is the demand uh, really meeting the supply or is there oversupply and now the demand is, you know, just kind of tapering off. Like, how does that, how do you see that working where, you know, since you started to where it is now? Yeah, I think, uh, I think honestly, first of all, I, I wholeheartedly believe that there's no shortage of good hosts for the hosts that are doing it right for good hosts. I don't believe that there's a shortage for good hosts. Um, you know, I, I definitely do believe, especially, and it also depends on what kind of property that you have. I do see a different type of demand for my bigger units than my smaller ones. The bigger units tend to have, just tend to attract more, the views on the bigger units are more. Um, so that's why I like my bigger units that sleep, that sleep eight or more. Um, so I definitely do believe that um, the demand will increase, even though there's the, if the supply grid, I do believe that the demand will still increase to match that, to match the supply. Um, 
from what I'm seeing, even like when something, if I get a cancellation right now, like the last cancellation I had was a couple of days ago, within four hours, it was booked again. You know what I mean? So um, I definitely do believe that because um, more and more people, I think right now about 30 to 40 percent of people that book on Airbnb is their first time using the platform. That's why I think that if people can actually get to where they're actually doing these host, this hosting thing right, they're providing a great service for people. They're providing uh, uh, not only a, a good a good experience, but a nice nice unit. They're providing units that meets the needs of these travelers. That people will stick to this platform more. That people people will stick to the short term rental economy more. And so I think that's why I think that there's you know if you're a good host out there doing it the right way, you're definitely helping the economy uh, as a whole, and you're bringing more more demand into the marketplace. So um, I definitely I definitely see a future in one hundred Do you think that that an investor, because you you know you, you started off doing the burrs, and probably there's a lot of people that are looking at that as like you know this is just a cash cow, like I'm I'm gonna take take you know I'm just gonna get in there so I can make some extra money. Do you think that that those people really can get into the world of short rentals and you know provide a really good experience, or is it because you're the guy that's going out there, you're managing, you're self managing, you're you're furnishing the properties, you're you know you're you're a real estate and hospitality business. Do you think that that it's because of that hospitality mindset that you're able to, or do you think that people that are just real estate focused and just trying to squeeze as much money as they can out of a, a, out yeah. of a deal are going to be Don't able be to like really do well or profit? Lay down. Right. I think. Uh, I think down. that if you're just one of those folks who are just like, no, I'm just throw something out there. I'm trying. I'm trying to squeeze as much capital as I can. I just want to see what this thing's about. Whatever the case may be, I think time will tell on your sustainability. I think having that hospitality mindset, and that's the thing, that's one of the things I had to learn, that this is not so much just a real estate business. This is a hospitality, actually more so than a real estate uh, business. Um, so, I, And I had to really switch and change my mindset to the hospitality mindset and think about the experience that they would have there. I think keeping that in mind is what's gonna help you be sustainable. I believe that if you're just kind of here to just kind of squeeze out as much product as you can and not keeping that hospitality mindset in mind, then time will tell and you will eventually realize that, okay, you, it's not, I mean, not to say that you'll be weeded out, but you'll realize, you, you realize that you're, you're, you will get as much booking, your cash flow is decreasing because you're not providing the experience and, and your reviews are going to, are going to really speak loud. And, uh, and then time will tell, like, it will, it will eventually, that's why, that's why I do believe that there are no shortage of good hosts. There's room for those who are doing it right. Um, so that's why I believe that having that hospitality mindset is really what's going to birth that sustainability and help you go and stay in this business for the long term, 100%. Do you, do you think that all just comes down to the reviews? So let's say there's an investor that's like, Hey, you know, I just want to throw a property out there. You know, I'm going to, you know, you know, I'll handle the messaging and it'll be, it'll be okay and then their reviews start taking a hit, do you think that only the people that are able to say, sustain those, you know, uh, you know, five-star reviews are gonna be able to, you know, really keep up in this business? Or do you think that it's okay if, you know, not every review is gonna be a five-star? Um, I think, I mean, you know, not every review is gonna be five-star, and, and that's understandable. Um, but I think for those who who are able to sustain as the, like the most five-star reviews as you can, um, those would be the ones that have that, that have that sustainability, but it's not just the reviews, right? There are other things, like especially if you're looking to scale this business. If you have one unit, then okay, maybe you can't handle the guest messaging as they come in and whatnot. But if you're looking to handle the guest messaging 
for all the units that you have, you will realize that your units will take a hit just in terms of performance goes. Um, that's why you have to add systems for, so it's not just reviews, it's those who are actually able to implement systems and implement um, technology and things that will help you run the business that are free of the time that you need to actually like focus on other things like ink, what I call income making activities, like picking up more units and things like that. On top of that, like your listing itself, you know, the pecking order, when somebody is looking to book an Airbnb, there's a certain pecking order that that, that goes inside the city factor, right? And then one is a picture, like people, they fall in love with your pictures first. Oh and so it still surprises me to this day when I look at listings without professional photos. It's still mind-boggling to me to this day. I want to invest that extra $200 or however much it costs to take pictures. Um, then the next thing is your reviews. Like, yes, the pictures actually has that slight edge over the reviews. And so then it's your reviews. And then it's your listing itself, the description of how you lay it out and whatnot. So I think a lot of those things um, kind of come together to it, to help that sustainability. And so, um, so I definitely, I definitely do believe that you know the reviews definitely matter, and that's a huge factor. But you, it kind of, it kind of matters on like every, like it all kind of comes together. What kind of systems do you have? Are you actually being attentive? Like, are you, is your response rate uh, high? You know, are are you getting the most out of your listing to actually stay relevant and stay as high ranked as possible? These are all the things that matter in terms of uh, in terms of sustainability and staying relevant for long for long term. Now you, you see and you talk to a lot of people. You host the meetup groups, uh, these master classes, um, and you see new people that are coming in. Are these people that are like in your market? Like, how much would you say are like professionals, and how much would you say are just people that you know think that they can make a quick buck and you know that they can start profiting from this business? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. When I talk to people, it's both people that are professionals, they're already in the real estate space, like myself, like I was, and they're looking to add strategy to something that they're already doing. Maybe they're, you know, they have traditional rentals, or maybe they do fix it. They want to keep some of the assets and make them short-term rentals. And so I talk to those folks a bit, and I actually like yes. those folks oh. because they kind of already have oh, that right mindset. Now. It's like okay, this is entrepreneurship. This is uh, this is a this is something that I want to last. This is cash flow that I want for the long term. What do I need to do to do it the right way to make sure that there's sustainability here? And then there's those folks that you know. Oh, I heard you know I heard Airbnb is good. Way to go. right here. I heard you know that I can make my money doing Let, it this way. Whatever case may be. Um, I want to. How do I do this? Or how I want to. I want to get into this. I want to get into this. So um, I get a little uh-huh. bit of both. Honestly, a lot of folks that are brand new. And just want to just want to see if okay. they can make extra money. Um, and some folks that are you know, professionals right that really want to take this thing and really build the business out of it. Not to say that there are the folks that are brand new that are really serious about building the business. Uh, we still I still see it. Talk to a lot of those folks as well. Uh, so I think it's a kind of a kind of a mix of both. What I what I do stress to people is that look, if you're going to get into the business, then 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 do it right. Like I want you to actually be a successful host because I am big on the short term rental, just the economy as a whole. I think if people, if guests are having bad experiences with hosts, then they are going to be turned away from using platforms like HomeAway and Booking.com and um, Airbnb, and they're going to go back to hotels. Because I do believe that our biggest, yes, there is direct competition within, you know, within your space and your market, whatever the case may be. But, you know, our biggest competition, I believe, are really the hotels, to be honest.